Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Everyone, welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. My name is Hilary Mar Lopez Nichols, and I am a community organizer at the Richmond Family Medicine Clinic, which is part of the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And today I'm super excited to be joined by my fellow community organizer, Popper Lenfer from Partnership Health Center in Missoula, Montana. We are very excited to kick off a series of six coffee and science events on topics related to alignment and advocacy, which are the last two A's of the National Academy of Medicine's framework that sirens use to organize coffee and science. Alignment and advocacy are both what healthcare can do um, at the community level uh, to address social needs. So in the next half an hour, Topher and I will delve into the work of community organizing within community health centers, which includes uh, joys and challenges, and we'll talk a little bit about the future. So Topher, let's kick it off. Tell me a little bit about how you got into organizing. I'm just super grateful to be here having this conversation with you, Hillary. And I think I'm going to have to go back to when I taught uh, high school language arts at public schools in Tennessee and Minnesota in low-income communities of color. And, and at the time, I, I really thought that providing a relevant and engaging curriculum and instruction would be the way that like young people would start to excel in education and follow the path that society says will, will lead people to a better life. The reality in my classroom was, was a little bit different than that. I had young people that were hungry because they didn't have you know, reliable sources of, of quality food at home. They were tired because they were staying up late, taking care of siblings. They you know, didn't have the space to do their homework because they were sharing a two-bedroom apartment with five or six family members. And so I had to acknowledge kind of the circumstances that our society had created for, for certain people and, and how we weren't, as a society, really providing the resources for everyone to excel at this thing called school. And um, that was just like a really big turning point for me when I realized that, that there needed to be something else going on beyond just providing quality instruction in my classroom. And, and I also want to point out, I know we're kind of early in this conversation, but I just want to, these dynamics that I think I saw in my classroom, they definitely connect to like systems of oppression. And I think that we'll get into how these things affect things like health and well-being but I just want to kind of call that out right now that clearly I've seen how these ways economic opportunities are limited for people. So yeah, that was like kind of my, how I started thinking about like, there has to be something we can do with people to change these circumstances because the circumstances aren't working. And for Partnership Health Center, where I work, what you're asking me about organizing, I think is that partnership was on a similar path, just at an institutional level where they were using social workers to try to connect people with resources in the community, which that's a fairly common way that, that clinics use social workers. But from the experience the partnership had in Missoula was that the resources just aren't there. You know, we can think about something like housing, where it's an incredibly tight market right now in Missoula, has been for years. I actually saw 
um, recently a grant that was written by someone in partnership in like 1995. And they were talking about the housing problem and how there was a lack of affordable housing back then. So this is like an old problem, decades old that we've been trying to address. And you know, our social workers are amazing. <laughs> they do so much to help connect people to resources. But one of the resources that if a low income person needs support paying for housing, because it's so expensive, you know, they need a housing voucher. Well, in Missoula, that wait list is like three or four years long. And then once you get a voucher, it can sometimes take six months to a year to find a place because there's so much discrimination. And you know, this just led to our, our patients being frustrated with social work, our social workers being frustrated with the system, and our providers kind of looking at this and being like, hey, I'm trying to provide quality primary care, and yet my patient doesn't have the foundation that a stable home provides. And so partnership, you know, I think you can maybe start to see why partnership was like, we got to do something different. And I think for us at partnership, organizing was that different thing, that new direction we needed to go in. Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to kind of turn this back on you, classic organizer thing to do here. And like, how did you get into organizing and, and what's going on for you all at the Richmond Clinic right now? I love to tell the story about how I came to be an organizer. And I just first wanted to say that so I, I, I'm a community organizer at the Richmond Clinic. We organize under a program called Health Equity and Leadership at Richmond, or Healer for Sure. And I just wanted to say that I really relate to the, the tension that you were, you were naming around folks feeling really frustrated that these systems are creating inequities in these social needs, that we have patients coming back over and over again to, to try to meet these social needs through the clinic, and it almost seems like a losing battle. And that's why we're here to focus on those structural forces that shaped those social needs in the first place. But let me back up and tell a little bit about how I became an organizer. For me, it was kind of two different tracks. One was sort of more career-oriented and one is uh, much more personal. So career-wise, what kind of brought me to be an organizer was my six-year career working in city government up in Seattle. While I worked in the government, I got to witness firsthand how decisions get made and how policies get written that can impact thousands of people, but often fail to actually meet the needs of those people. Um, or worse, cause active damage. And I saw how these institutions, like the institution of healthcare and many of our other institutions that we have here, they're rooted in white supremacy and colonialism. And so it's not really a surprise that they continue to fail um, our uh, BIPOC communities uh, and perpetuate all the inequities that we see today. And just seeing like all these structural level things like policies and laws and regulations being created, um, often without any input from the people that they would impact, um, and, you know, people didn't really get a chance to say, we want this or we don't want this. So that's kind of the career part that brought me to be an organizer um, and getting really fired up about, like, being involved in the civic arena. But in terms of organizing for health and health equity, that comes from a much more personal space for me. And I like to bring in the person who really motivates me, which is my cousin, Vanessa, who died by suicide about eight years ago. And, you know, when I think about my cousin, that, I think about my cousin when I organize, um, because I really believe that her decision to end her life was hugely impacted by the injustices that she experienced that worsened her health. You know, as a first-generation kid of Cuban immigrants, she faced racism and discrimination. And as a woman, she experienced sexual violence that forever left her traumatized. As a queer person, she experienced homophobia that she turned inward and as a person growing up in a lower income neighborhood, she didn't have as many of the privileges that come with a well-resourced neighborhoods. And so 
for me, that connection is, is pretty direct. That injustice was um, part of what caused my cousin to get so sick. And you know, when I think about those injustices, I feel angry. And in organizing, anger is actually an emotion that we really invite because it's motivating. This stuff is intentionally personal for me because for myself, as a biracial, multicultural queer woman, I face many of the same injustices and pressures that my cousin experienced. And, you know, a lot of the patients that I get to interact with through the Richmond Clinic have their own experiences with oppression as well, and especially um, oppressive systems. And what we're trying to do with community organizing is turn those experiences of oppression into real power. What does it mean to community organize? And, and what does that mean? And I think power is really important to community organizing. So could you think of like an experience you've had at Richmond Clinic that you were able to build this type of power? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the word power. It's a great one because it can actually mean many different things. The word community has many different definitions. The word organize has many different definitions. But let's talk a little bit about what we mean when we're talking about organizing or community organizing, especially for um, health equity in this context. And the way I like to talk about um, what community organizing is, is often through a story, I think, um, especially in organizing, it's really um, much easier to identify what it is through the story. So this is a story um, about language access and medication, which to me is very personal because so many people in my family and community are Spanish speakers and or their second language is English. So I wanna take you back to about 2017 when one of our key organizers who also happens to be a provider at the Richmond Clinic was meeting with a patient that he felt really close to. This patient we've been seeing for years was an older Korean American person. And this person had had a string uh, recently at that time of emergency department visits for taking their blood pressure medications differently than they, how they had been prescribed. And for this provider, it stuck with him because of his own experience and personal story of being a Korean American person and growing up in a family who sometimes needed help with translating prescription labels. And so as it often does in organizing, this kind of one interaction spurred the need for more listening. And because of this, one patient was struggling to understand their prescription because of language barriers. Surely other people are dealing with that same thing. This provider, um, along with other staff and organizers, again, these are people who are also doing their provider, nurse, PAS jobs, but are doing community organizing. This is an action we can all take. You don't have to be paid organizers like me and Hopper. We started a listening season that included one-to-one -one meetings and listening sessions with patients and building partnerships with community-based organizations. And all told, during this listening season, we talked to about 80 people. I want to maybe stop your story for a second yeah. to ask, I know this listening part is really important in organizing because, you know, we all have our own kind of individual lived experience of things and that to try to get outside of ourselves requires, you know, some empathetic listening, some active listening. And it sounds like that's what you started to do. And I'm wondering, like, what did you hear from people? I mean, you're, you're starting this process and that's so important to start to figure out, like, what are we actually hearing? So, so what was that like? In our organizing efforts, we really want to focus on folks who we know have a lived experience with these oppressive systems. And so where we were organizing was primarily with patients who came from an immigrant or refugee experience and heard many different stories around language barriers in healthcare, right? So you're asking about um, what are some of the big problems that we define problems as like really big things. 
And so the problems that we've heard were lack of interpreters in exam visits, after visit summaries that are only in English, and patients going home with pill bottles who are only written in English and where English was their second language. So on that big problem, one story that really hit home for me was uh, coming from a family of Spanish speakers and hearing how the word uh, once can be misinterpreted as once, which means 11 in Spanish. And it doesn't take rocket science to think about how you are able to read your prescription. You don't know that you're supposed to take one pill and not 11. Like we're essentially sending patients home with poison. And so we've heard lots of different problems, but this one was kind of floating to the top. Yeah, that just seems so outrageous now that you point that out because English is my only language. You know, I kind of walk through the world just like with English and I don't even think about some of those things. Gosh, like <laughs> how, I, I mean, what did you do? Because like I, 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 like I said, as an English speaker, like I kind of wouldn't even know maybe like what people need or like how to go forward thinking about how I would organize people. So how did you all start to kind of work with people so that they could do something about this situation? Yeah, so I think the biggest difference between organizing and principal direct service like we've been talking about is really seeing patients as leaders. So through this listening session, we're trying to bring in people with that lived experience and identify them as leaders of this campaign. And so through this listening, we're, we're listening to about language barriers in healthcare. We're honing in on this one specific issue of the lack of translation and prescription labels. We knew that this was experienced by a lot of people. We were learning that with the folks that we were listening to, um, more than 75% of folks were taking their meds differently than prescribed and less than 10% actually knew their dose and indication for their meds. So we knew that this was an important issue. We, again, started to identify as like, is this actually a winnable issue? And through lots of different work, we felt like that was. So mandating the translation of all prescription labels kind of became our, our issue. So from there, like I said, we're trying to gather a team of people who can work together on this. Um, and we want that team to mostly be people who are either directly impacted or had family who are directly impacted by this issue. And that's what we did. That was our core team. So again, this is a core team of people focused on the issue of language, translation, and prescription medication that's led by people with a lived experience of the issue. And that put a ton of work to research the issue and take action. And I saw a question about how do you initiate conversations with those who haven't personally experienced inequity? Um, I think this is one of the cool things about organizing is that through sharing stories that, um, that we have with one another, we can actually identify shared interests, even if our stories aren't exactly the same. Even if somebody, like Popper, you were saying, you don't necessarily have experience being a non-English speaker, but you might have the same experience of not understanding your prescription or it being confusing. And that's shared interest right there. So even if folks don't have a particular experience with an inequity that we're focusing on, that doesn't mean that we can't work together. I'll bet that there's something that we can share in our experience. And so, yeah, it's really bringing together people with lived experience and sometimes without that lived experience, but really uplifting the voices of those with lived experience. So it feels like there's been a lot of listening. And I guess I still want to figure out, though, how you moved into action. Like, I'm used to doing listening sessions, like different places I've worked. And I feel like listening is something that is a low bar. So how did you take all this listening and then actually do something about it? Yeah, that is the question always. And so there's lots of tools that we could use in organizing. But one of the things that we can do is called a research action, which, as we talked about before, power is really at the root of all of these issues. And so we have to do a power analysis. We have to see who has power to make this decision, who has power to actually make this change. 
you know, as a core team, we have a lot of inherent power in that lived experience, but we don't necessarily have the power that a legislator has, right? So during these research actions with this core team, we met with key stakeholders, pharmacists, um, that was an important one to get their buy-in, uh, community organizations and government representatives, with the representatives of the catchment area of the Whitman Clinic, um, and started to craft legislation with the help of lawyers to mandate the translation of medication labels. Um, we didn't know if this was gonna pass, but at the direction of the leaders with lived experience and with the help of allied legislators, lawyers and pharmacists, that legislation did actually make it to the floor of the Oregon legislature uh, in 2017. And so from there, we organized a huge number of testimonies at the Senate committee hearing. We organized testimony primarily from uh, patients with the lived experience of language barriers, but also representatives of community-based organizations and ally lobbyists. Okay, and what, what happened? <laughs> The, I don't want to keep you on your seat. Because um, things, I mean, I hear a lot of things go before state legislatures, yeah. and then sometimes nothing happens. So we love this story because after all of that listening and researching and organizing and testifying, the legislation actually did pass. So in the beginning of 2022, Oregon will mandate that prescription medication labels must be available in 14 different languages. And as of right now, this is the most inclusive language access bill in the U.S. And we have a smaller team that's been working for several years with the Board of Pharmacy on rule implementation. And um, not every campaign ends in a wind like this. And so I think that's important to uplift. But it's also important to uplift that it does happen and it makes a huge yeah. impact. <laughs> that's such an incredible story. And I guess like one thing that kind of jumps out to me is that I hear about people going to the legislature, giving testimony, and sometimes that feels spontaneous. And I think like what your story really highlights for me is that usually these things actually have like a structure behind them. Like there's people who are like literally organized, <laughs> you know, to, to do something about this. It's not just like a group of people, 10 friends talking to each other, but it's like you intentionally started asking people at this clinic about this. And that's just seems so unusual <laughs> to hear this type of story. My experience is that, you know, we want to talk about like Medicaid reimbursement rates or something. I work at Partnership Health Center. You work at Richmond Clinic. Those are both community health centers. And it makes me think about how unusual this sounds to me now. But I'm also thinking about how like those first community health centers, community organizing was a, as much a part of them as, as direct patient care. You know, and that John Hatch, he was a black physician from Tufts. And, and he was actually the first hire at the very first community health center ever. And I love his job title. He was the director of community health action. That this community and health and action from the beginning have been there. And just a quick story about him. Before that clinic even opened, he spent like a year in Mississippi listening to people in Mississippi. He was a doctor, you know, from Tufts, which is, you know, kind of in the Northeast, right? And so he went down to Mississippi for a whole year. And I just think that that's also what you're talking about is, oh, people have something to offer us. Like we need to be listening more and following their lead. Um, I guess just thinking about people as people and not people as patients. This is other idea that in community organizing, we always want to say like, you know, never do for others what they can do for themselves. So that also sounds like something that you're really picking up on here that we need to be letting our patients not just be patients with like whatever they're there for, what, you know, whatever is that acute thing, but that, that there's something else here. 
that these social needs and organizing could be like new vital that we take so we can prioritize the needs of our patients. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought in the the history. That part feels very important to me, and especially thinking about Dr. Hatch. You know, it's as we are starting to revamp community organizing in the clinic setting, I think it's important to remember that these are actually our roots. This is how community health centers started. Um, and so, yeah, credit where credit is due. But knowing that history, I want to ask you, Popper, like, what's your perspective on like why we should be organizing today? Why now? That now question, I think, is always a big one for me because it's like, why now am I taking this action. When I think about healthcare institutions, you know, we think about them like they just play a huge role in our communities. In Missoula, our healthcare institutions are like big employers. You know, there's a lot of people that work for these places. And then of course they provide an essential need. Healthcare is of course something that a service people need. So, so we're happy to provide that. But that, that gives these institutions like a lot of status and prestige. And I guess... You know, I, I can't help but juxtapose that power, that prestige, that status with, you know, just over the last year and a half, these like really clarifying moments that have really tragically revealed, I think, how structural oppression, you know, like st- structural racism devastates our communities. You know, I mean, we can look at COVID-19 and communities of color have been at increased risk of serious illness and death um, because of these systemic inequities that that go back decades in in housing, employment, education, even healthcare systems themselves, you know, how that care is delivered. So I guess now it's like, what did we learn from the murder of George Floyd last year? You know, along with the, you know, additional thousand or so people that have died since George Floyd's murder and also the people that were killed before then, that these these are like unjust systems of power can be deadly for people. So I think that's like a big thing that we have a responsibility to address these structural oppressions. And I think about doing that through relationships and that that's like what organizing allows us to do is to develop trust, develop understanding of people's priorities and actually address those priorities and those needs. I think especially patients who have a lived experience with these inequities of the social determinants of health, you know, these are the people who have that expertise uh, in how to shift policy towards, I think, more equitable outcomes. I completely agree with Papa. I feel like in my organizing through Richmond, it's been really incredible to see how powerful and transformational, but for myself, other staff, and for patients, um, and to realize that, like, Patients are inherently amazing leaders um, for structural change. And getting to watch some of our patient leaders testify before or legislature or organize listening sessions with other patients, it's just been a really unique opportunity and it's personally really fulfilling. And yeah, it's just amazing to see power build in real time. And I feel like we've got some amazing years ahead of us. We're kind of getting towards the end of our time here. What role do people have? Like, you know, whether that's a social worker, a nurse, a provider, maybe it's the, the receptionist at the front. I think that this can be about that, that interaction you have with a patient already. You're asking, you know, how, you, how, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And I would just say to really like make that interaction as meaningful as possible. Like really listen to the patient as a person, not just as a like, as a cough or as a whatever symptoms they're presenting. And as much as we've kind of been imagining how we can make some big structural shifts here, it starts with these patient interactions that pick a one or two week window 
And for that one or two week window, like there's an endpoint, and think about like how you could maybe take notes on what you're hearing. Maybe write down the patient first name, last initial, or keep it someplace private. HIPAA is a thing. Um, and but like start to gather those people together in some way. Like you're listening, you're hearing a theme emerge, and then you can start to gather people together. And through that gathering, I think naturally other things, like there's a question here of how do you know who in the government or maybe a local business to go to go after. I think that that will kind of, as you listen to each other and as you maybe learn more about an issue, those things kind of start to present themselves. You, as you research, you start to realize who the decision person is. Like, who's that decision maker? And then like, okay, how do we need to work with them? Or do they even wanna work with us? And what do we need to do? So I think kind of just starting with like how you interact with people that, that are coming, maybe that's a good place to start. I don't know if you have anything else to add add on to that. Yeah, totally. On the point around like really just seeing patients as people and taking the opportunity to sort of informally track what you're hearing. Are people talking about housing? Are people talking about water quality? You don't even have to identify the patient, but just listening to themes um, and then keeping your eye open for opportunities in the civic arena or again, like we're talking about bringing together those patients, like you just suggested, Hopper, um, to come and talk about those issues. That can be um, incredibly power in and powerful in and of itself because you realize that like these systemic issues are not your fault. There are other people who are experiencing those things. And that in and of itself can be really transformational. And just being able to see patients and like coming together with patients and staff in a kind of like in this setting where we're we're connected to the clinic, but we're doing something really different. I can personally say it's been really, really powerful. Just I hear over and over again when we talk and like really build relationships between patients and staff and we're talking about these issues of, of justice or injustice, folks feel really seen. And I want to be clear that this is not a one-way thing. We're not only exposing our patients and their stories. We are also sharing our own story. Our stories might not be exactly the same, but I'll bet everybody in this group has some experience of feeling powerless. And that's really kind of what we're trying to address here. You know, I just want to call in one last story since I know we're at time. And that is just a, a patient um, that I just think about often, um, who a while back was organizing in the campaign for affordable housing that we were doing um, a number of years ago. And uh, was part of the healer program and said that being a part of healer and doing community organizing with healthcare people was kind of the first time that they felt like as a, seen as a whole person in healthcare. And I think that's really special and worth uplifting. And uh, I'll never forget that they said the, the Richmond Clinic prescribed me my medicine, but healer prescribed me a purpose. And for me, that's my purpose. And I just, I feel like we can all do this together. So that's what it's all about for me. Yeah, that's like, I think that's a great note to end on. You and I could talk about this all day. We, we do talk to each other about this type of stuff often. You know, Hillary, I just want to thank you for kind of sharing that story, sharing your experiences. I feel like I learned something every time I, I talk to you. I'd like to thank all the people that have been listening. The next Coffee and Science is in two weeks on September 24th, and it'll feature a conversation between Wiley Liu and Darlene Hightower on the healthcare anchor model. We hope that you'll join us then. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jugla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb 
Dylan Gonzalez and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.